You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. Amen. Let's give it up for Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. Well, very good morning to you. 2024 is the year of prayer, a full year of learning to become the hidden disciple from last week in Rembrandt's painting, a year of rejecting the way of grind. Who's been grinding this week? We're setting our grind down. It's a year of rejecting the way of anger and cynicism, rejecting the way of apathy, and receiving the invitation into the place of power, the place of prayer. That's what this year is all about for us as a church family. And today we kick off a new teaching series called Teach Us to Pray. I mean, I could not be more full of expectation for this teaching series because here's what I know. Uh, It's really easy to get excited about prayer. Uh, It's really hard to pray. It's really easy, what's really easy is to hear teaching on prayer and go, oh my gosh, that's so good, I'm going to become the hidden disciple, it's the place of power, and then here's what I know happens, you get into the place of prayer and you realize all of a sudden, I don't know how to you know, here's how it often goes uh, for people. You know, you hear a teaching like last week's teaching where it's this invitation into the power of prayer and the possibility of prayer, and you get really excited about it if you're anything like me and you think, man, I, I want to pray. Like, I'm really excited to pray. And then this week, I don't know, Monday morning maybe, if you're really on top of it, you, you got up out of bed and you're like, okay, it's the year of prayer. I'm going to get this thing kicked off in the right way. I'm going to give myself to the morning practices, the afternoon practices, the evening practices of prayer that we talked about last week. You're like, I'm in, I'm going to become the hidden disciple. And you're all hyped up and, you know, you got a little bit of, you got a little bit of like juice in you. You're like, I'm going to pray. This is the year. I'm going to really figure it out. And you, you make your pour over, you, you know, you drink your Keurig. If you're a Keurig person, oh, I don't know. There's all kinds of different people. You get your espresso uh, from your Nespresso machine. I don't know what kind of coffee person you are. Maybe you're a tea person. I don't know. You get your morning drink. You sit down. You find your little cozy spot, and you're like, this is it. I'm becoming the hidden disciple. You sit in, uh, you sit in the chair. And 60 seconds goes by, and you've prayed for everything you can think of, and you think to yourself, well, now what do I do? Two more minutes goes by, and without knowing it, all of a sudden, you're scrolling the news or sending memes to your friends on Instagram, and you have left the hidden place and gone into the public place and you've already failed at the year of prayer. Here's what we know. The idea of prayer is captivating. The practice of prayer is really, really hard. And what, we, what we're encountering in that moment, whenever we're scrolling the news or uh, sending memes on Instagram and kind of failing to pray, is we're seeing that there's often a gap between our knowledge about prayer and our experience of prayer. It's like for a lot of us, especially if you've been around church for a while, you know a lot about prayer. And you know, you're like, I know I should pray, but the reality is when it comes to actually practicing the practice of prayer, we have very little experience with it. And many of us, even if you've been around for the church for a long time, we actually don't know how to pray. But one of the most relieving things in the world is to realize that Jesus' disciples felt the exact same way as you and I feel. It's like we want to pray, but if we're really honest in our most vulnerable moments, we don't, even if you've been around the church for 20 years, we don't really know how to pray. There's a scene in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, where the disciples come to Jesus. It says this, he, speaking of Jesus, was praying in a certain place. And if you read the gospel of Luke, you will find that in almost every chapter of the gospel of Luke, Jesus has this practice of withdrawing from the crowds, withdrawing from the public place, into the private place, into the secret place, into the place of prayer. And as we enter into Luke chapter 11, we see that Jesus is doing this again. He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
Now, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples had witnessed Jesus do some amazing things. I mean, really, really amazing things. They had seen him raise the dead to life. They had seen him heal the sick. They had seen him calm a storm. They had seen him feed the 5,000. Amazing things. They had seen him stand up in front of crowds and teach with authority. They had seen him build a movement. And yet, in Luke chapter 11, when the disciples come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to teach them something, notice what they don't ask him. They don't ask him, Jesus, you know, I mean, we've seen you teach with authority. Will you teach us how to teach like you teach? That wouldn't have been a bad request. I'm sure Jesus was a really good teacher. They didn't come to Jesus and go, Jesus, we've watched you build this amazing movement. And would you teach us how to lead like you lead? They didn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we've watched you raise people from the dead and heal the sick. Will you teach us how to raise people from the, people from the dead and heal the sick? They didn't, they didn't ask Jesus, Jesus that. What did they ask him? Well, of all of the things that they could have asked him. The one thing that they ask for Jesus to teach them is for Jesus to teach them how to pray. And the question we have to ask is why? Because if I could come to Jesus and I could ask for anything, I don't think I would have asked him to teach me how to pray. Why did they ask him this of all of the things they could have asked him? Well, I think it's because they perceived that prayer was the secret to everything that Jesus said and did. It was the thing underneath all of the things. It was the secret thing that fueled the big, massive public thing. Andrew Murray in his, in his work uh, says this, he, 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 has, he has a book called uh, With Christ in the School of Prayer, on the Lord's Prayer, and he says this, the disciples had been with Christ and seen him pray over and over and over again. This is what they watched Jesus do. He would do public ministry and then he would retreat to the private secret place. The, he, he, would, he would retreat to the hidden place. They had learned to understand something of the connection between his wondrous life in public and his secret life in prayer. And so they said, if there's one thing I want to learn from Jesus, it's this. I want to learn to pray. I want to learn to pray like Jesus because it, prayer, is the key that unlocks everything God wants to do. Prayer. So they come and ask, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And in the next few verses, we get one of the most potent passages of the Bible. I mean, it's potent. Where Jesus, the master prayer, comes to us and teaches us how to pray. This is Steven Spielberg doing a course on filmmaking. This is T. Swift teaching us how to write a love song, or maybe a breakup song, I'm not quite sure. This is Nikola Jokic, where are my Nuggets fans at? Teaching us how to shoot the fader. This is Jesus on prayer. Matthew's version is 66 words. Luke's version that we're gonna study, a little bit different than the version most of us know, I did it because of the unfamiliarity is only 39 words. And what I love is the simplicity. The simplicity. It's just 39 words. And so if you're here and you're like, oh, it's the year of prayer, I mean, that seems like level 10 spirituality. I think I'm level one spirituality. If you're feeling that way, you need to know it's only 39 words. And all you need to become a master prayer is 39 words. Simplicity. I don't know who taught you how to pray, but most of the people that taught me really overcomplicated the thing. I mean, I've got paradigms and acrostics galore. 
when it comes to prayer. And all we need is 39 words. The prayer is so potent that today we can only handle one word. We got one word today. That's it. It's the word Father. This is the starting place of prayer, is understanding God as Father. Look at how Jesus responds to his disciples' request. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, and look at Jesus' response. He said to them, simplicity, whenever you pray, say, Father. In this one word, Father, in this one word, we get two resources that we need to get out of the blocks and start the race of prayer. First, we get a proper view of God, and second, when we get a proper view of God, we get a proper view of ourselves. And if you want to learn to pray, you and I, we need both of them. So first, to start praying, I want to show you that we need a proper view of God. In his work, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer famously said these words. Many of you have probably heard them before. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the singular most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous or important fact about any man or woman is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. So let me just ask you this question. What do you conceive God to be like? Whenever you think God, what words come into your mind? Whenever you think God, what emotions bubble to the surface of your heart? Now, notice what I'm not asking. I'm not asking this. What should you conceive God to be like? I'm not asking that. Too many of you are really good students who know the right answer. What I'm asking is what do you conceive God to be like right now in this moment? What do you think he's like? Is he good, bad? When you think God, are you comforted or are you anxious? When you think God, are you fearful or relieved? When you think of God, what comes to mind? What do you conceive God in your deepest heart to really be like? Important question. One of the most fascinating things in the world to me is how Jesus teaches us to address God. How do you address God when you pray? Look at how Jesus teaches us. Verse 2, he said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father. Father. Now, it's important for us to notice what Jesus does not say and how Jesus teaches us not to start our prayers. He doesn't say, whenever you pray, say, Almighty God, as if God is some distant deity that you cannot know. He doesn't say that. He doesn't teach us to pray and say, okay, whenever you pray, say, Dear God, as if you are writing a letter to God. You know, we're not dear God in God. He doesn't even say, whenever you pray, say creator or Lord or almighty or Lord of lords and king of kings. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? He says, whenever you pray, say Father. How do you start your prayers? whenever you pray, because how you start your prayers shows what you conceive God to be like. 
And Jesus here, in one word, the word Father, is shifting the way we conceive of God. That He is not only distant ruler or sovereign creator or righteous judge or almighty God, but He is also, and most importantly to Jesus and His disciples, a heavenly Father. But this brings up a really important question. Okay, I get it. He's a father. He's like a father. But what kind of father is he? Because there are good dads and bad dads. So what kind of father is he? Yesterday I was uh, loading my kids in the car and I had a not-so-shiny father moment, okay? We, were, we decided to take our kids uh, out uh, to the trampoline park uh, to waller around in the ball pit and get the flu. Uh, <laughs> it's all I could think about while I was in the ball pit with my son. We are coming home with the flu. So we load up, we're, we're getting ready to go to the trampoline park, they've got the ball pit, they've got the trampoline space, you know, all of it, it it's, it's great. It is, uh, it's not great, it, it's great for them. <laughs> and uh, we were just like, man, we gotta burn some energy on a cold day. So, I don't know if you, if, if you don't have kids, just imagine this with me, but if you have kids, we've got three little kids under six. To get out the door when it's negative four is an act of Congress, okay? It's an act of Congress. And let's just say, I was trying to get us out the door, and I was flustered. I was flustered. I, just, I admit it. I was flustered. I had to lock all the doors. Allie was outside trying to load, the, load our girls up. I had our son in one arm. I'm trying to get my water bottle to stay hydrated. Allie got me an Owala. I feel like I have every, the thing everybody has now. <laughs> Who has an Owala? Yeah, that's what I thought. A lot of people. It was in my stocking. I'm getting my puffy coat, I've got other people's puffy coats, I'm, I'm like, I am flustered, so I'm, I'm getting out the door, and, I, and I'm going to load my son in the car seat, and all of a sudden, he decides he doesn't want to be in the car seat. And I feel like I'm giving Shep a bad rap after the last two weeks, but go, he's a great kid, I love him. <laughs> he's arching his back, he's getting mad, and in that moment, I felt myself getting, I was already flustered, really angry. Uh, having a bad dad moment, angry, frustrated, ready to shove him in with all the strength. And Allie saw me do this. I had to like close my eyes and take this deep breath and collect myself. I don't know if you're a dad, if you've ever had to do this. And go, okay. And in that moment, I just was like, that's not the kind of father I want to be. I don't know if your dad, you've ever had that kind of moment. And for all of us, we, even if you had a good dad, your, your good dad had bad moments. He had trampoline park moments. And so we have to ask the question, well, what kind of dad is he if he's like a father? Because there are good dads and bad dads. And it's an important question to ask because some of us can think whenever we see God as Father that He's just like our earthly Father. And we view the Heavenly Father through the lens of our earthly Father. But what can happen, especially if you have a father wound, is that that can be one of the most painful ways to view God. So I think as we get into this father thing, I just need you to hear me say this. If your earthly father was abusive, absent, neglectful, or angry, hear me say this, your heavenly father is nothing like your earthly father. Nothing like him. And even if you had a good father, your good father had bad father moments, and the heavenly father is like your good father in his best moments, but he's nothing like your earthly father in his worst moments. 
He's not like me yesterday going, you know what I could do? Just shove this kid in his seat and strap him in with all my anger and power because I am more powerful. Sometimes when I'm changing his diaper, he's like wrestling me. I will say the words out loud, I will win this. (laughs) Oh, you need to hear this. Your heavenly father's not like that. Your heavenly father is not like that. Michael Reeves says in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, he says this, God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. He's not some pumped up version of your dad. Now this is massive, especially if you have a father wound. I'm gonna talk about the father wound in just a second. He is not some pumped up version of your dad. To transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, things are the other way around. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him, only where some do that well, others do a better job of reflecting the devil. And some of you need to hear me as a pastor say, your father was demonic. He was demonic in the way he treated you. And your heavenly father is nothing like your earthly father. And the enemy has used the sin of your earthly father to taint your vision of your heavenly father and keep you from him. And today is the day that you can leave that vision of the heavenly father behind in Jesus' name. And you can be healed of your father wound. And so I just want to say a word, one, real quick, before we move on. I want to say a word to those of you with a father wound, and then I want to say a word to the fathers in the room, or those of you who want to be fathers in the the future. Um, If you have a father wound, I'm sorry. I'm sorry your dad did that to you, whatever that is. But the best thing you can do is flip the script. And stop today viewing your heavenly father through the lens of your earthly father and start viewing your earthly father through the lens of your heavenly father. Flip the script. Your heavenly father is nothing like your earthly father. I'm about to show you that in just a second. Especially if your earthly father was abusive, absent, neglectful. But also I wanna give a word to the dads in the room. If you're a father in the room, or you desire to be a father, my word to you is pay attention. Pay attention to how you are relating to your children. Because whether you like it or not, you have power to shape their vision of God. This is in my notes, but I think I should share it. Um, In her book, the war on toxic masculinity. I mean, sorry, let me, let me say this the right way. In her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, and there is a toxic war on masculinity right now. You need to be aware of that. Nancy Piercy cites a study, 35-year longitudinal, longitudinal study, over the course of 35 years. They took children, and they watched them for 35 years, and then they looked at their life, and they said, what are the greatest factors for those children growing up to love God and follow Jesus? What are the greatest factors? Um, And they found that the number one factor in a child growing up to love Jesus is whether or not they had a kind, nurturing, and affectionate father that showed them physical affection and spoke words of affirmation over them. Okay, fathers, wanna be fathers? Not believed the right things about God. Not went to church, read their Bible, all that. That's good, you need to do that. But what they found was it was fathers who were kind, nurturing, and affectionate toward their children 
held their children, hugged their children, spoke words of affirmation over their children. So if you're a father, I gotta move on, but if you're a father, pay attention. Because the way you relate to your children, whether you like it or not, and you could say, I don't want that responsibility, too bad, you have it. You have it. And if you neglect it, you are neglecting your calling as a father for your children and raising them to love Jesus. Okay, that was free, I gotta move on. So what we need is we need a vision of what the Father is like. If Jesus tells us to relate to God as Father, we need to go, okay, well, what kind of Father is He? And the good news is, in the New Testament, we get this beautiful vision of what the Father is like. So what I wanna do here is I wanna give you five ways to view your Heavenly Father. Five ways to view your Heavenly Father, straight out of the Scriptures. Number one is this, your Heavenly Father is not cold but affectionate. Your heavenly Father is not cold but affectionate. The first thing we see the Father doing in the New Testament is speaking words. The very first thing the Father does in the New Testament is speak words of affirmation, affiliation, and affection over the Son. It shows us what the heavenly Father is like. It shows us who we're coming to in prayer. This is what the Father's like. Look at this, uh, Luke chapter three, verses 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice, this is the voice of the Father, came from heaven and said this, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The very first thing the Father is speaking over the Son are words of affirmation, affiliation, and affection words of, of affection, you are beloved. Words of affiliation, you are my son, and I'm proud that you're my son. And words of affirmation, with you I am well pleased. You know what I love about this? This is before Jesus did any work for the Father. So the Father is, is not cold toward his children, but he's affectionate toward his children. What kind of father is he? He's affectionate, close, and encouraging. This is what he is. Second, your heavenly father is not ignorant of your needs, but attentive. He's attentive. There's a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching on the cure for anxiety. And he says, many of us need this, he says, hey, if you want your anxiety to go away, you've gotta become aware of who your Father in heaven is. Look at this, Matthew 6, 25 and 26. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, don't worry about your life. I love that line. Many of you are like, I would love to do that. <laughs> I would love to not worry about my life. How do I do that? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he says, consider, let's do a thought experiment. Consider the birds of the sky. The birds, they don't sow or reap or gather. In other words, they don't grind. They don't grind. They don't work hard. Gather into barns, yet your, important word, your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? This is a statement of value and understanding how valuable you are to your heavenly Father. If He sustains all of the birds and elk in the mountains and bobcats and, I mean, he does that. How much more will he care for you? You don't have to spend your whole life worrying. Your father is attentive to your needs. Third, your heavenly father is not stingy, but generous. He's very generous. He's good. There's a section where Jesus is teaching on prayer, one of my favorite teachings on prayer in Matthew chapter seven, verses seven through 11. Look how Jesus tells us to view the Father. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, 
If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. You know, it's like if little, again, we're back to Shep. If Shep comes to me, he's like, Dad, can I have some bread? You're like, I would never say, here's a rock. That's what Jesus said. I would never do that. Like, that's not what dads do, right? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake that could harm him. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, look at these words, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The number one reason we don't pray is not because we're not disciplined. It's because we don't understand who our Father is. We don't know what he's like. For your heavenly Father is not impatient and cruel, but patient and compassionate. Your heavenly Father is not impatient and cruel. Think of the story of the prodigal son. Many of you know this, Luke 15. The prodigal son runs away. He blows everything his father gives him. And yet when he comes home, look how, look how Jesus describes the posture of the father. But while the son was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. This is what the father's like. And some of you have been running away like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and you think the father is done with you and angry with you, and if you come home, you're going to get nothing but a scolding and a wagging finger, but the reality is there is more patience in him than rebellion in you, and his word to you today is come home. Your father's better than you know. The fifth thing we learn about the Father is this. Your heavenly Father is not severe and harsh, but merciful and comforting. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says this about the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. He's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you know that your father is like this? He's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's what your father is like. And so let me ask you the question again. What do you conceive God to be like? What do you conceive him to be like? Back to Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse two. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father. And when Jesus said that word, he had all of these things in mind. This is who you're praying to. He's affectionate and attentive and generous and patient and compassionate and merciful and comforting. This is what you, this is the God that you are coming to. He's your Father. And when you understand that God is a Father, you will understand then who you were made to be. So this is the second thing we need to start praying. To start praying then, we need a proper view of ourselves. A proper view of ourselves. John Calvin famously started his tome, The Institutes, this way, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. If you want to be a wise person, you need to understand who God is, and then you need to understand who you are. And if God is a father, then we are a child. And I know this is insulting, but what that means is that you and I are needy. We are dependent creatures made to need God. We are non-self-sufficient. We need a father. And what this teaching does, God's fatherhood and our childhood, this teaching leans on the doctrine of adoption. The, the doctrine of adoption in the, that we find in the New Testament says that apart from Christ, we are an orphan, but by faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. So right here we need to talk about something that's going to be uncomfortable for some of you. 
It's going to be uncomfortable for some of you, but it's something the Bible makes very clear. And so we, need to, we just need to say very clearly that God is not everyone's father. God's not everyone's father. How are we doing? God's not everyone's father. How are you with that? Let me go further and just like push a little bit more. God is not everyone's father. Therefore, right now, he might not even be your father. But he can be. What I want to show you really quickly is that God is not everyone's father, but he can become anyone's father. The concept that God is everyone's father is a modern sentiment, but it is not a biblical sentiment. He does not relate to everyone as father, but only to those who have returned to him by repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul teach this. Let me show you this, starting with Jesus. Jesus says this in John 14, 6 and 7. This is a new spin on these very familiar verses. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, God becomes your Father when you come to the Son, Jesus Christ. Look at how he continues. If you know me, you will then also know my Father. So Jesus says, the way God becomes your Father is by repentance and faith in me. The Apostle Paul teaches us the doctrine of adoption in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at this together. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says this, he predestined us. Ignore that. That's for a different day. (laughs) I just needed (laughs) another day. Important, not for today. He predestined us to be, look at this, adopted as sons, you could insert, and daughters through, how? Through Jesus Christ. How do you become adopted? How do you go from orphan to son or daughter? It's through Jesus Christ. He did this for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So here's the point. God is not everyone's father, but he can become anyone's father by faith in Jesus Christ. He can become your father today by faith in Jesus Christ. And for some of you, this is where you need to begin the year of prayer. Not with like unloading all of the burdens on God, though you can do that, but by praying a prayer to God, saying, I don't want to be an orphan. I want to trust Jesus Christ and become your son or become your daughter. And right now, or in our response time, that's your only job today. That's it. To enter into the family of God. This is why Jesus teaches very clearly that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they become like a child. Like, I can't do it on my own. I need a father, and you get a father through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you pay attention to the prayer, to the Lord's prayer that we're studying, both in Matthew and Luke, this prayer is given to whom? It's given to the disciples. It's given to the disciples who have been adopted into the family of God because they are trusting in God's son, Jesus Christ. In fact, in fact, this is wild. In the early church, a little history lesson for you. In the early church, they would not let anyone pray the Lord's Prayer until they said, I want to trust, I want to trust Christ. They said, okay, that's great, Let's, we'll see. And then they, they took you through two years of catechesis, and then you had to be publicly baptized, and then they would take you into a private room where they would give you the Lord's Prayer. Why? They said, because God's not everyone's father. Not everyone can pray this prayer. Only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ can pray this prayer. And this shows us all that the starting place of prayer is to simply receive our childhood. That's it. To go, man, I'm not made to be self-sufficient. I'm not made to do image management and make sure everybody likes me and thinks I'm awesome. 
I'm not made to project put together. I'm made to be a needy, dependent child. And this is the way we enter into the Christian faith and the way we maintain the Christian faith is by simply receiving our childhood. We kicked off our series last week with the powerful Rembrandt called Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Powerful painting. We talked about being the hidden disciple. And Rembrandt lived a wild life. I've got a couple more Rembrandts for you today to end our time together. Rembrandt lived a wild life. Uh, Much of his life, later in his life, he would say that he uh, wasted in kind of like rebellion. He loved women. He loved the numbing of alcohol. He made a lot of money, and uh, he was good at the art of spending a lot of money, Uh, which sounds awesome to me, uh, you know. and, uh, and uh, Rembrandt, uh, toward the end of his life, he, he, he would just come out and he would say, man, I feel like I wasted a lot of my life. And in 1635, toward the beginning of his life, he, he painted a self-portrait called The Prodigal Son in the Brothel. We'll put this uh, painting up here on the screen. I believe we should have it. Yeah, this is, I hope you can see this. Uh, this is actually a public service announcement. This is our final week with these terrible screens. Next week when you come in here, there's going to be a new screen here. It's going to be awesome. So you can see my paintings. Anyways, <laughs> right here, right here. So over there, you will see nothing. Right here, you <laughs> might see, you might see a couple things. And this is early on in his career. He painted this self-portrait. This is Rembrandt, uh, a, a vision of himself, and he calls this the prodigal son in the brothel. And the prodigal son in the brothel, this is meant to represent what it looks like when you leave God and can finally live it up and party. That's the prodigal son in the brothel. And you'll see that he's actually with a prostitute in this painting. He had his uh, wife uh, pose as the prostitute so that he could paint it. I don't know how I felt. It. I don't know how I feel about that, but that's very, that's very weird to me. But uh, anyways, this is him with a prostitute. Uh, and you'll see that he's ra- raising a, 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 a cup of beer and he's living it up. And uh, he, he painted this as a representation of his early life. He, he said, man, I, I lived life to the full. I partied. I, I, I enjoyed women and going all over the place, all this stuff. But toward the end of his life, uh, he wasn't the same man. And he actually, uh, he actually painted a final painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. So this is his first representation of the prodigal son. But what he wants you to see in the painting I'm about to show you is that this version of the prodigal son doesn't last forever. Doesn't last forever. And in the next painting here, we'll put it up on the screen, this is, this is his image of the return of the prodigal son. And this is the final painting he painted. He painted this painting 34 years after he painted the, p- painted the prodigal son in the brothel. And it's a powerful image of what it looks like when you first leave the house of the Father. You think that it's going to be better. You think that it's going to be more powerful and you're going to be able to live into all of your passions. But what it does, if you pay close attention to the painting, is it leaves you empty and it leaves you needy and it leaves you without your clothes. It leaves you in poverty He has almost none of the stuff that he had before. And I imagine the prodigal son in the brothel that represented Rembrandt thought that he couldn't come home to the father. He had partied, he had tried to do life without the father. But at the end of his life, Rembrandt got the gospel. And he woke up to the reality that he had a father in heaven that's nothing like he thought. He thought that he could figure out life on his own. He thought that he could live it up and party and, party and go through the women and, you know, live life apart from the Father, but it left him empty. And I wonder if this is your story. I wonder if you have been trying to grind out life on your own, and you've certainly had some experiences like the prodigal son in the brothel. But you enter into here today and you are like, man, it's left me empty. It's left me hopeless. And I don't know where to go from here. And the answer to that question, where do I go from here, is you go into the arms of the Father. You go into the arms of the Father. 
and you ask, what is the Father like? And I just, for those of you that can see it, I just want to say the Father's like this. He's not waiting on you to return to him so that he can scold you and say, you were wrong, I was right, get your act together. He's waiting on you to return so that you can feel the warmth of the Father's embrace. This is what the Father's like. And so to end our time together today, before we respond, I just want to do a little bit of prayer ministry over you and care for you through prayer by reminding you of who your Father is and inviting you to receive it by faith. And so if you would, I would just love everyone to close their eyes, bow your heads. I'm not going to do anything weird while you're not looking. Bow your heads. Father, I want to invite you by your Spirit to come and minister to us. We have spent all week carrying around false visions of God, false visions of you. And right now, we need a reframe in the name of Jesus. And so come, Holy Spirit, and minister to us. If you're here this morning and you are anxious about life, you've been suffering panic attacks, you're worried about work and relationships, your word is how much more? How much more will your Father in heaven give to those who ask? If your Father clothes the lilies of the field, how much more will He care for you? Cast your anxiety on Him. To the failure who this week did the thing again that you swore you would never do, Maybe it's the pornography addiction. Maybe it's the substance addiction. Maybe it's the outburst of anger at your children or your spouse or your roommate. To the failure, your word is this. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. In Christ, the words of the Father are true of you. You are his beloved child in whom he is well pleased. Not because of what you do, but because Jesus Christ has died on the cross for that sin and been raised from the dead. To the needy, your word is ask and it will be given to you. Picking up the promises of Jesus from the scriptures and saying, I need provision. I need reconciliation of a relationship. To the needy, your word is ask, and it will be given to you. Your Father is not stingy, but generous. To the sinful, your word is the Father of mercies. The Father, because of Jesus, does not treat us how we deserve to be treated, but he's merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And to the prodigal. Those of you who gave up on God and gave up on church and tried to do it without God but have found it lacking, your word today is come home. Come home. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, you could pray something like this, silently. Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins, and I know I cannot save myself. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Wash away my sins by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. I want to enter into the new family of the Father. As best as I can, I give my life to you. Come home. 
If you just silently prayed that prayer, you just came home to the Father. There's cleansing in Christ. And His righteousness becomes your righteousness. And now you've been adopted into the family by faith in Jesus. So Father, I want to pray that you would seal these words over our people. You're the Father of mercies. You're waiting on us to come home. You're better than we know. Come Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond in a few different ways today. We're going to respond first through singing. And maybe for you, you don't quite have the words to express. And singing is a way of praying together, seeking God together. And so we're going to sing together. Second, we're going to respond through communion. And we're going to remember through communion that we can come home to the Father by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has come and he's lived the life that we were supposed to live, died on the cross for our sins, and that by faith in him we can be cleansed of our sins and reconciled to the Father. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to invite you to come forward or go backwards and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits, and remember your adoption, that you have a Father in heaven who's good and who loves you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would say it doesn't make sense to take this meal. Uh, This is a public profession of faith but we want something better for you, and that is to take Jesus himself. If you prayed that prayer with me a minute ago, we would love to know. Uh, Come let us know. You can also let a prayer team member know, and we would love to follow up with you and help you know what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And finally, we're going to respond through prayer. Maybe you just need time to set some stuff before the Father. You're more than welcome to do that. You can kneel, sit, stand, whatever you need to do. We have a prayer team of people up here with lanyards on. They're also back there in the back of the room for those of you in the back section. They would love to pray for you. Sometimes you can have a hard time believing in prayer and you need somebody to believe on your behalf. That's what these people are for. And so man, what I would love is lines of people going to the prayer team, lines. As usual, uh, Jonathan and I will be up here anointing people with oil and praying for healing. So if you're sick, hurt, injured, we would love to do that right up here. So church family, let's stand and let's respond as the Lord leads us.